You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Today on Max's Island, I've got Simon Reeve with me. Simon, welcome to Max's Island for the first time. Thank you, Tony. It's great to be here. Simon, on Max's Island, we love to hear stories from people who have done something that's been a bit special in their life, something where they went against the grain or just told the world that I'm going to do what I really always wanted to do. Have you got a time in your life when that happened for you? Well, I can almost give you the date, but I, I, it was 1990, and I was working for a program called Beyond 2000, a, a science and technology show, which was, I guess, you know, I would use the word iconic at the time. It was uh, watched by a big audience around Australia, and I was incredibly fortunate uh, and lucky to be working on it. So went to Zimbabwe with the show, um, and that's when Qantas used to fly to Zimbabwe. Uh, can you believe it? Um, <laughs> once a week, they had a flight going into Harare out of Johannesburg. And uh, the Qantas crews, you can imagine, they absolutely loved it. It was, it was that there was a week-long layover. These were very different times, only 30 years ago. But So I went, it was my first time to Africa, and I stepped off the plane in Harare, and it was visceral. It was this instant love affair with the smells, the air, uh, there was dust. It was sort of the end of the dry season. Um, and I just thought, where has this been all my life? I, I'd been told by a, a friend of mine, in fact, a guy who you and I both know, who was a Qantas pilot, Steve Horn's his name. He had been flying to, um, to Zimbabwe for a couple of years with Qantas. And he said, mate, he said, you are going to have a life-changing experience when, this, when, you, when you finally get there. And, and sure enough, uh, three years after him, I, I did. And it was, it was like um, uh, a punch in the stomach. You know, it was, it was instant and it hasn't, the magic of that day has not left me, uh, and that was 31 years ago. And I still feel exactly the same way about, well, certainly about Zimbabwe and about Africa generally. Uh, and I vowed pretty much then and there to go back and live in Africa at some point. Now, there are 54, 55 countries in Africa. So I, I, I fell in love with Southern Africa, had been lucky to travel to East Africa as well. 
uh, to Kenya and Tanzania a few years after that with another program. But I, I, I vowed to myself on that first trip that I'd go back and, and live there at some point. I came back and told my dear partner, Linda, that this is going to happen and you can come too if you want (laughs) (laughs) because I'm going to do it. And so one thing led to another. Uh, We ended up having our daughter in the sort of mid to late 90s and it was at that time that uh, the planets aligned and uh, people whom I'd known in South Africa had moved to Botswana Uh, moved their operation, their safari operation to Botswana. And I'd been talking to them for for a long time, hoping that this might happen before we had a child. But, you know, life never works that way, does it? You know, it's never never straight lines. So they said, look, we like your plan. We like this idea of you forming this production company and attaching it to our safari operation. Come on over when you're ready. So our daughter was roughly about sort of 18 months at the time. And uh, Linda, my partner, bless her, she had the, the guts and the courage to sort of step up and say, yep, you know, I'm, I'm up for this. So we packed up our lives, jumped on a, another Qantas plane out of, um, uh, out of Perth, actually, and flew to, to Johannesburg and, and then bought a car, bought a, a four-wheel drive, drove up to Botswana, which was about sort of 14, 1500 Ks into a tiny little town called Maun. M-A-U-N, which is at the bottom of the Okavango Delta. And so we had the two most wonderful years of of my life, certainly. Linda might say something different if she was here talking about this, but it was just adventure, great friends, incredible times, uh, difficult times as well, lots of challenges. But um, I think I've said to a lot of people since then, you know, when, you, when you're over there and when you're stepping way out of your comfort zone like that, you know, you, you are truly living. You're not just existing. I think a lot of the time we, we sort of roll through life. We were on automatic. We're not really paying much attention to what's around us. You know, being in the moment, which is the, the sort of de rigueur term of, of the day. But um, over there, we were in the moment all the time for, for better and, and sometimes for worse as well. Simon, had you spent much time in the outback of Australia before then and travelling around and, and also your partner, Linda? I, w- w- and funnily enough, Tony, uh, Linda's parents uh, own a pub in Kalgoorlie, so she sort of spent most of her formative years uh, growing up in Cal, and that's, you know, a tough town, great town. Learned a few lessons at a young age, she did. And so I'd been fortunate, yes, to travel with uh, on a number of different shows around the country, I'd been to the Kimberley for the first time uh, working on a, on, a, on a Channel 7 program in Perth called State Affair. So I'd been up to the Kimberley, to Kununurra and beyond uh, in the 1980s. And, and really, for me, that was that is still to this day the other place that uh, reminds me so much of Africa without elephants and lions and rhinos and what have you. So, but, but the air, the colours, the terrain, the open spaces... Uh, it's spirit country up in the Kimberley, I think. And so I, I relate to the Kimberley, as I, I, I guess, as I do to Africa as well. So look, I, I just wish we had all their critters over here and then I'd probably be happy. But there, there is a special magic about Africa for sure. Simon, you went over there to set up a business. How easy was that in a foreign country? Well, 
I had to sell the idea first to the managing director of the company called Quando Safaris, that's K-W-A-N-D-O, for anyone who's listening and wants to look them up. And Kevin, uh, I'd met him in South Africa uh, working for another show that I was doing at the time called Wildlife. I was reporting for a, a show that Olivia Newton-John hosted here at, for the Nine Network. And I'd met him at a, at a wonderful place called Pinda. And uh, I'd... I guess I'd been formulating this idea for some time. Uh, and so I was ready to go with my pitch when I met him and we'd spent a couple of days in the bush together. And, uh, and I felt like, you know, he was somebody I, 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 I liked and could trust. And I put this idea to him about attaching a television production company to their safari operation to try and add value to their safari brand and their, their camps. And so he liked the idea. And, and so we talked about it for a couple of years. Then, as I mentioned, they moved their operations from South Africa up to Botswana. And, and he actually uh, re-initiated that discussion, uh, revived it and said, you know, is this something you're still thinking of? You know, are, are, you, are you at that place? And so I'd been working on a medical program at the time called Good Medicine on, on Channel 9. And, uh, and I went to my boss then and said, uh, Peter, this a, another legendary character of television called Peter Meekin. I said, I'm, I'm actually going to go to Botswana, Botswana <laughs> and live. And his reaction was classic with a, a few choice words. Um, and, uh, and so six months later, we were, we were on that plane. You know? So uh, the, the, the great thing was that you know, Kevin bought into that uh, into that sort of dream of mine. And, and I knew going there, I, I wasn't doing it, I was doing it for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons. I, I, I went there not to make pots of money because that didn't happen. And I think that's a, something that we learned, you know, through life, uh, sometimes to our detriment, but, but you, you, it, it is worth following that dream through um, because I know that I would have been cheating myself if, if we hadn't, if I hadn't followed through on that. And I've fortunately still got someone who allows me to go back as often I can, as often as I can, finance and time permitting and everything to still get that hit. But, but yeah, we went for the right reasons, I think. And so lots of things happened as a result of that. So we did manage to get a series up with Animal Planet in the US, uh, a series called Mad Mike and Mark which was hosted by two safari guide friends of mine. And so we did that for a couple of years. During that time, uh, we moved, had moved back to Australia as well. So I was going back and forward to Botswana and Namibia and other places and other, other countries to, to finish that. It had the potential, I thought, that series to sort of roll on, but for various reasons, as happens in television, everything fell apart and it all ended in tears. But it, it was a, a, a wonderful experience. And as I say, we, we made lifelong friends over there who we're still in touch with, who we still stay with. They'll come and stay with us over here, vice versa, into um, Zimbabwe and Botswana and other places. So, uh, yeah, it's still Africa still has a big place in my heart. So for those two years, how busy were you? You know, were you going out on safaris every week, every fortnight? And, and how were you, you filming? You know, obviously you did the Animal Planet series, but were you doing other bespoke video recordings and, and production? Yeah, very good question. So the, the Animal Planet stuff, 
pretty much happened almost at the end of that two years, as, as we were sort of packing up to come home, that that idea was starting to fly. And so you're right. So in that interim, uh, when, we, when we sort of hit the ground there, I had a camera. I taught myself to shoot reasonably adequately. I uh, taught myself to edit as well. So I was a one-man band. But And this is, you know, a smartphone these days produces... Uh, infinitely better pictures than the camera I began with in 1999, way back when. But it was enough of the time for me to be able to shoot little videos around the town that we lived in for other companies as well. Um, they paid us a nominal, Quando Safaris paid us a nominal sort of uh, salary, you know, each month, which, uh, and helped us out with our sort of living circumstances, which was wonderful. And then I was able to shoot stuff uh, in the camps, and they had a lodge also uh, above um, the Zambezi, the lower Zambezi River in uh, in Zambia. And so the, across their sort of four or five camps, I was up there probably, you know, shooting every couple of weeks for sort of two, three, four days at a time, putting together little stories uh, long before there was social media and, and sending them out through their network, you know, through their network of travel agents in the US and um, in Australia and the UK and across Europe. And so the satisfaction, the great reward for me was oftentimes bumping into people in the camps who were from the States or were from London or whatever, who would say, oh, you know, you're, you, you're here filming, you know, what do you do? And I said, well, I put together little videos for these people and I remember these three, these three gals one day, these three American gals uh, who were having an absolute hoot, said, oh, my God, you know, like this guy who was guiding them, Philemon, um, we saw him in one of your videos and we booked our safari straight away. And that safari was, you know, 35, 40 grand or whatever. So I was wow. like, I don't have to worry about, you know, justifying my existence. And, and so that was... Uh, you know, wonderful for me to know that the stuff that I was doing and, and churning out and putting out there was being seen by people and people were responding to it as well. So nowadays, you know, you have got oftentimes, you know, in-house uh, photographers, in-house videographers with these safari companies, uh, with these safari operations who were there, uh, you know, on a almost on a permanent basis putting out content every day. It's a very competitive field. So it's not like I was the first person to do this by any means, but um, there had been, you know, wonderful cinematographers operating in, in these areas long before I got there. But the idea that I had was that, you know, we, we could add value if we can make these little stories and get them out there. And back then it was very different. You, you know, you physically gave somebody a tape and they, you know, sent it off to someone and, uh, but but that was that day I'll never forget. You know when those girls said, you know, yeah, we're here because of your video and because we fell in love with this 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 guide right here, Philemon. You know, so talking about falling in love, what was one of the places that you fell in love with most of all over there? And I suppose there's many of them, but yes, there are. Look, I I do. I mean, I, I could bore your audience for a long time with, with the names of places. But one particular place, which was on that first trip with Beyond 2000 back in 1990, we went to Bulawayo in Zimbabwe. And so when we were there, and in 1990, 
things were pretty stable. Uh, they had had the Bush War, the, the, the Civil War, which had sort of torn Zimbabwe apart. Mr Mugabe was, was in power, and but things were pretty stable. There were tourists coming from all over the world and Zimbabwe was doing pretty well. And so we went to Bulawayo. We had sort of probably three days there filming. I, I know I filmed a, a, a rhino story and, a, and a, an elephant story in Wangi National Park. And there were just the streets, the whole vibe of Bulawayo, I just instantly loved. And over the years, I would have, you know, given anything to have gone back there and, and lived in Bulawayo. And I think people who come from there, there may be a couple of people, Zimbos listening to this now, who, who relate to, to what I'm saying. There's something very special about Bulawayo. I obviously, obviously loved Mound, where we were living. Uh, Mound was a bit of a, a in Botswana, Mound was a bit of a, a wild west town back in the in the 60s and 70s with an incredible array of characters who kind of washed up on on the shores of Mound and uh, and and lived their dream as as we were doing. So you had people from all over the world. Uh, Mound is a uh, service town for the safari industry. So really. Uh, interesting, eccentric people, and so we, we, in fact, the, the the place we were renting on the Tamalakani River, which is this beautiful old hunter's cottage, we were living on the grounds uh, of a home and property owned by a famous uh, former Rhodesian Zimbabwean filmmaker called Tim Liversedge, and so Tim and his wife June um, allowed us to you know, rent this little cottage out and stuff. So, I mean, those memories are so vivid to this day of all the, the bird calls, the waters. So the rain would fall in, in Angola in, our, in, in their wet season, so through December, January um, and into February, and then make its way to Mound, you know, whatever it is, 1,500, 1,800 kilometres to the south by June, so with the slow sort of the, the gentle gradient. So the water would come down into Mound uh, through the Okavango Delta to Mound about six months after it fell in Angola. So, and there was this massive celebration, you know, when you people would drive out to watch the trickle, this trickle of water right? and almost dance around it and stuff. And they'd take picnics and it, those memories are, are absolutely cherished by me. On safari, any close calls? And I suppose you had, you know, opportunities to get close and personal to lots of animals? Yeah, yes, look, we did. Um, and and mostly involving uh, elephant, uh, because Botswana has Africa's largest uh, elephant population. And where we were filming and operating, right up on the border with Namibia, this is um, on the, the southern side of the, the Kondo River, uh, the southern side of what's called the Caprivi Strip, which is this tiny little finger of land, you know, typical colonials. The, they created this bizarre finger of land between Namibia and Botswana, which you know, almost instantly went into dispute as to who owned it and who could operate there. And, and so it was the, 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 uh, the sort of source of many skirmishes between the two countries. Even when we were there, they were, they were arguing about it still and probably are to this day. But there had been a lot of hunting in that area and uh, hunting of elephants and, um, and you know, all, all game. Um, and it had been, uh, it had been literally sort of a bit like the Wild West 
until you you got a little bit more order sort of through the 1980s and 90s. But even when we went there, there was still hunting was carried out on both sides of the Kwondo River. So elephants and game generally were very jumpy around vehicles. You know, so they, elephants are very sentient creatures, so they would respond instantly to the sound of vehicles and, you know, usually sort of take off. But sometimes uh, in the bush, you know, you'd be bumping along. Uh, this is when we first got there in the, in the first 12 months, 18 months or so, and you would stumble onto elephants, you know, in your vehicle. And, you know, there were lots of hairy situations where uh, what they would people describe as sort of a breeding herd of, of mainly females and younger elephants would round up on you and, you know, oftentimes you know, charge your vehicle where you stand your ground. <laughs> you know, that's the, the kind of first rule of engagement. But then there were times when we had to hightail it, you know, and, and literally being chased by, you know, a herd of elephants. So, yeah, the heart was in the mouth a lot. And, and we did do quite a few walks in the bush as well. Uh, there's nothing better than walking in, in the African bush for, you know, adrenaline, for keeping your uh, senses kind of alert and alive. And, and then we did occasionally bump into Ellie's and stuff like that. And so those moments, yeah, you, you, you never forget when you are sort of five metres from an elephant that's staring you down and, probably wants to do you harm but yeah so we, we did have quite a few close calls but uh, here I am today doing this talk with you thankfully. We often hear about the um, poachers in South Africa again was that a problem in the area that you were with? Yeah look you touch on you know a, a fascinating a delicate subject because if you are living in a village if you are having to share your land with um, wildlife uh, in a wildlife management area or on the edge of a national park where there might not be fences um, or, a, or a large private concession where there might not be fences as well. And you have elephants raiding your crops. You, as happened the other, the other day uh, with a project that I'm, I'm still involved with called the Kopi Lion Project, and this is up in, um, in Tanzania at a, in the Ngorongoro Conservation Area not far from Ngorongoro Crater, three young boys were, were taken by lions, were killed by lions. These are the Maasai kids. Um, I think the boys were like, you know, sort of 12, 10 and 8 or something like that, were somewhere where they probably shouldn't have been, but, you know, boys being boys, stumbled onto a lion pride and lost their lives, you know. So that for, for us on the outside in the West, you know, we, you know, look at poachers and say how terrible, you know, how could you cut the horn off a rhino or whatever. But if you're living in your, your daily life around wildlife, you know, you, you're, you're going to be under threat at, at some point or your family is going to be under threat at some point. And, for example, through the pandemic, if, if tourists aren't coming and that money, that revenue isn't coming into your village, you know, through those conservation projects or whatever, then you might have to improvise to try and, you know, put some food on the table that night. So you might light, lay a snare for um, an impala or a wildebeest or that kind of game and ends up snaring a lion or a cheetah or a leopard or whatever. So I guess what I'm saying is that the, 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 there's a very complicated picture around poaching. So you have subsistence poaching, which is for people to survive, and that is wanting to, to get an impala to feed their family. And then you have 
the, the horrors of commercial poaching, where you have a faceless, usually criminal gang, potentially out of somewhere like Vietnam or Thailand or, or China, who then pay middlemen, who then pay somebody on the ground to go in and take out a rhino and to get a rhino horn, uh, which is, you know, incredibly dangerous. And, and I'm not saying it's, you know, defending the, the poachers here or whatever, but it's a very complicated picture. So, yes, we saw the evidence of poaching when we were living over there, as I've done many stories on it over the years as well. And it was terribly sad, this, this more recent story of these three young boys in the in Gorongora Conservation Area losing their lives. Um, you know, these are grieving families. So somebody, an organisation like Kobe Lion that I, that I know well, you know, they have to go in there and say, you know, we don't want you to take out your grief, you know, retribution on any other lines that you might see. So how do they mitigate this terribly difficult relationship that, that all these people have with wildlife in their area? So, you know, we don't have those problems here in, in Australia. Uh, so the, the, the poaching picture is very, very complex. And there are, bad, there are bad dudes out there, no doubt about it. But when you have a demand for ivory and rhino horn, you know, when things like that, when, when lion bones can fetch big prices in, in Southeast Asia in particular, and I'm not just pointing the finger at, at them, but that, that, that is the, the largest source of demand in places like Vietnam and Thailand, uh, then you know, you are always going to have a problem because people are willing to step outside for what might be big money to them. It might be nothing to us, but that $300 to a, a family living in a, in a small village or small town on the edge of a national park uh, might feed them for a, a long time. So, uh, yes, we saw a lot of evidence of it when we were living there and, and I've had quite a bit to do with this topic and this subject over the years and, and it is very complicated. Simon, as we start to wind this up, I'm interested to know from that experience you had in, in the late 90s, early 2000s over there, have you translated much of that experience back into either a, you know, a hobby here in, in Australia or, or even a business opportunity? Well, as, as we speak, I'm pitching African podcasts. I'm pitching, I'm always pitching something to do with Africa. I'm always pitching something that hopefully gets me back there. Now, of course, the times we're living in and the mess that we've made of this thing in Australia, while the rest of the world barrels past us and, and gets on, their, on with their lives. And, and as we speak, Tony, there are people going on safari in, in Botswana, in Zimbabwe, in Namibia, uh, in Kenya, in Tanzania. You know, they've, they've been doing that for many, many months now. And so they've made a plan as, as the, the great sort of Southern African term, term is, you know, we'll make a plan, we'll make this work somehow. And that they've, they're doing that. They've been getting on with it. But here in Australia, we've dropped the ball on, the, on this COVID thing and, and, and still trying to sort of sort that out. So everything pretty much I do in my life is designed to get me back to Africa at some point. Now, I would love to have another series up or something. I'll, I'll be talking to a good friend of mine this week about 
um, this particular podcast series that I'm pitching. Hey, if you know people um, <laughs> uh, at the moment. And, and so, yes, you, to your question, yeah, I'm always sort of plotting and planning and scheming to try and get back there. And uh, I, I hope that when the, when the pandemic is, when it settles, because we are going to have to live with COVID, whether we like it or not, you know, for the rest of our, our days, uh, when, when things settle down, I do hope to be back on a plane heading to, to Johannesburg and then wherever that takes me from there to kind of carry through some of the ideas that I still have and would like to sort of um, get up and, um, up and running before my days on this planet are done. Simon, thanks so much for being on Maxis Island. One of the things that uh, you've brought today is, I, I think, some relief for some of the listeners because we are all locked down. We are becoming a little insular in our lives with, with being locked down or thinking about not getting out of Australia in particular. So to take us across the water to a place that some of us haven't been to, but a lot of us have and, and have experienced, it was, um, it's, I think... A, it might be a real relief for people to have experienced that today and, and just dared themselves to dream a little bit about what it's going to be like once the borders do come down and we are able to travel again. Thanks, Tony. Yep, look, I will bore anyone anywhere about Africa and uh, it's been a pleasure doing it here today with you. And, and just before we finish, I know you're putting together some, some work, uh, a little website, so you want to give that a plug? Yes, you can. <laughs> You can go to simonreeve.com.au um, and I have uh, yeah, I've become a, a reasonably proficient photographer over the years as well. So, uh, yeah, there, there's some great African images there that are available for sale, by the way, Tony. And, um, yeah, it, it is an outlet for me where I like telling stories as you are doing here so wonderfully. Simon, thanks so much for being on Max's Island and look forward to perhaps having you back again to tell us another story of um, some of your travels around the world. My pleasure. Thanks, Tony. We spoke on the bus on the way home from work. He was lost in the details of life. Each day was a blur. Oh, work and no play And how, how it had turned out this way He told me his plan A short-term escape Five weeks on the Bibbulmun track Go it alone, no one to blame If he finished or fell by the way
sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky. Completely alone, no emails or phone. 